Thank you. Would you stand uh, for the reading of scripture this morning? We are continuing in our study of Simon Peter, the apostle Peter this morning, and it brings us to Matthew 16. You will note that there is one line of Matthew 16 that is in the gold print. I will, resp- I will ask you when we get to that point, would you please say that with me? That is Peter's confession, which is our focus this morning. So hear God's word. Take a deep breath, please, before we go into God's word this morning. Be reminded that these are the most important words you will hear this morning. It's straight from God's word. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. In heaven. And then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. Uh, I have a lot of confirmands and former confirmands here today in my confirmation class. Some of you know that's one of my great joys in my work. Uh, we walk through the Bible, the basics of the Christian faith, and there's usually a point where I ask a question, a simple question of my students. I say, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I grab a dry erase marker, and I head to the board, and I begin to write things down. My students will know that this is not, this is not an actual picture because my handwriting's not that good, but um, I begin to write down their responses. And here are some common responses that I can remember over the years. Uh, What does it mean to be a Christian to follow Jesus, to be forgiven, to know the Bible, to try and live a good life, to go to church, to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, to do good, to serve other people less fortunate than ourselves, to pray, to really understand Jesus' teaching. So I write these down on the whiteboard, I scribble them down, and then I ask the question, a follow-up question, which is, um, out of all these things, which of these things could feasibly, true about, feasibly be true about someone who's not a Christ follower, who's not a Christian? And then uh, I pull out a colored marker and I begin to cross some of those things off that could be true about somebody who doesn't know about Jesus. And usually what happens is 
that we're left with kind of two basic things. Knowing or believing Jesus and following Jesus. Knowing Jesus and following Jesus. And then I note that all of the other things that they said are, are, are really great, um, and they come as, as a natural byproduct of knowing and following Jesus. We love people better, and we pray more, and we go to church, those kinds of things. Um, I love this exercise because um, it really boils down the Christian life to uh, its basics in, in many ways, and that is exactly what our text for today from Matthew 16 does. It boils down what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, down to the basic things. So let's dive into these texts. This is a great uh, morning if you, if you have a Bible with you to just keep your thumb in, in Matthew 16 and to follow along. Uh, because this text is broken into two parts. You probably felt that as I was reading it. Um, this is sort of like a, a, a two-play, two-act play in a way. Um, it's Jesus' interaction with Peter at Caesarea Philippi. That's the first part of this. And then the second part is Jesus turning his focus to Jerusalem. And appropriately, Peter is the primary disciple in both of these uh, parts of this story, which is why it's an important text for us as we continue to do this character study of Peter in this Lenten series. So he becomes for us what he's been in all these texts, an avatar, a doorway for us to understand what it means to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. So let's take each of these two parts one at a time. The first uh, opens in verse 13 where Jesus travels with his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Um, this is the farther, farthest northern region uh, in, in, in Israel. It was back then as well. Uh, it's in the foothills of Mount Hermon, which is Israel's tallest and often snow-capped um, mountain. It is a really beautiful place. This is one of my pictures that I took there. Um, it's also a very rugged place to be. Um, and it is a place of particular significance, even outside of the Bible, because it contains a freshwater spring that mingles together with the runoff from that snow-capped mountain, Mount Hermon, to form the Jordan River, which feeds the Sea of Galilee, which turns into the Jordan River again and then exits into the Dead Sea. Uh, but because of the abundant fresh water at the source of the Jordan as early as the 5th century BC, hundreds of years before Jesus, this place was a notorious place of worship. But not Jewish worship, not Christian worship, pagan worship. There are still caves there today. You can see one of them in the center of the screen there that one can visit that were sacrificial caves to the god Pan, who was seen as a half man, half goat and the god of chaos. There's actually an area to the right of that cave, which uh, archaeologists have found was, was an actual, like a threshing floor, a, a, a sacrificial floor for goats. Uh, but it is believed that in those caves, more than goats were sacrificed there. There were human sacrifices as well, as awful as that sounds, to the god Pan. There's attestation of this being a really dark place of self-mutilation and bloodletting and, and all sorts of pagan worship that was regularly practiced in those caves. This is probably what Caesarea Philippi would have looked like at the time of Jesus. You can see the grotto of Pan was still there. It's connected to that sacrificial cave. Um, it was still active at the time of Jesus. There was also a temple to the right of that grotto, which was a temple to the god Zeus. Uh, Herod actually uh, refurbished that temple and built another one on the other side of the cave, um, which was a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus. There was also in the center of town, not in this picture, but in the center of the town of Caesarea Philippi, there was a temple to the Syrian god Baal, or Baal. So in short, this is a super, super pagan place. 
It's a global village that was defined by idol worship and syncretism and, and uh, all sorts of, of really um, violent, kind of scary stuff. What a poignant place for Jesus to take his disciples. One can imagine, if you can sort of visualize it, if, you, if you're looking at that, there they are by the source of Jordan. Maybe they're, they're putting their toes in the water, getting a drink. And on one shoulder, behind one shoulder, is the sacrificial cave to Pan behind Jesus. And behind another shoulder is the temple to Caesar or the temple to Zeus on the other one. And against that backdrop, Jesus asked that question. Who do you say that I am? Think about it. Am I Pan? Am I Caesar? Am I Zeus? Am I Baal? Who am I among these gods that you and I both know are not real gods at all? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond by saying, well, people are saying, maybe John the Baptist, or maybe Elijah incarnate, or maybe Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. First of all, let me just note my disdain for the phrase, some people are saying. It's one of my least favorite phrases. Anybody with me? Um, It gives me a lot of... uh, courage and, and, and encouragement to know that Jesus maybe was annoyed by that phrase too. Uh, just speak for yourself is what Jesus says, right? I don't care about what other people are saying. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? Peter, as we've already seen in pretty, pretty much every passage, is quick to speak on behalf of the group of disciples. He stands up in the face of the god Pan, in the face of the temple of Zeus, in the temple of Caesar. He says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in this, he is saying several things. He's saying that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament has prophesied about and foretold. He's the Savior of the world. That he's God's Son and that he himself is divine. And that everything that Jesus has said about himself and the world and everything that he's taught must be true. That's what he's saying in this confession. And he's doing it, this remarkable confession, in, in, in the face of real, true opposition that is all around him. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He gives him an A-plus in terms of this confession. He totally aced this. He tells him, you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will never be able to stand against it. Um, I'm not being facetious when I say that this might be the most debated verse with the most consequence in the history of the church. Let me explain why. Um, There's a play on words happening here with with Jesus. Simon's name, uh, Greek name that Jesus gives him as a nickname is Petros, which means rock. We translate that as the proper name Peter, but it's also rock. Uh, And he says, you are Peter, you are rock. And on this Petra, which means stone, I'm going to build my church, a play on words here. Uh, The Catholic Church, our Catholic brothers and sisters have held that Jesus is using this play on words to indicate that the church was built upon the person of Simon Peter, which is why they trace the papacy all the way back to Peter. He was their first pope, and papal succession flows from Peter to where we are today. Um, Our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, and later we as Protestants, uh, way later in the game, uh, have taken a different interpretation of this passage seeing Jesus play on words as a way of saying that the rock on which he was going to build the church is not Peter himself, but on Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So which one is it? Is it Peter or his confession? Um, I in no way seek to diminish 
Peter's role in the founding of the church, his primacy in that sense, and we're going to spend weeks discussing this after Easter. We're going to continue in our study of Peter going forward. Um, But I'm firmly in the camp that the rock that Jesus is building his church upon is Peter's confession, not Peter himself. Um, This is informed both by the grammar of the text, but also the broader context of the biblical narrative and Jesus' own words about the church. Much ink and, and even more blood has been spilt over the interpretation of this text, which is obviously highly regret- regrettable. But Peter aces Jesus' question, and Jesus establishes that his confession is going to be the foundation for the people of God enacting God's kingdom work in the church moving forward. So that's part one of this text. Then comes part two, and I put these together for a purpose. Verse 21 tells us, that Jesus, after this, began to set his eyes towards Jerusalem and the suffering that he was going to endure in Jerusalem, even to the point of his death on a cross. Now, Peter is either upset or confused by his words. I'm still not sure which, uh, maybe both. But we see him basically pull Jesus aside. Um, maybe he's feeling pretty good about himself after his, uh, after his A-plus at Caesarea Philippi. And I imagine him sort of putting his arm around Uh, Jesus' shoulder and going, hey, Jesus, that's not going to happen. Come on, that's not going to happen. Let's just think positive, okay? You see, Peter just made this bold proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. So this is pretty dramatic news to him, that Jesus is going to suffer and going to die. Maybe Jesus is just feeling down. Maybe he's a little pessimistic today. So Peter rebukes him. He rebukes Jesus. By the way, that word rebuke is the exact same word where it says that Jesus rebuked the waves, or even more powerfully, when Jesus rebuked the demons out of people in in the Gospel of Mark. This is pretty severe, strong language. This is a super bold move for Peter, isn't it? And Jesus does not react very well uh, to Peter rebuking him. In verse 23, it says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. If he got an A-plus in Caesarea Philippi, he got an F-minus here. I want to pause the scene and just ask you to enter into Peter's shoes from a couple of different angles here. First, can you imagine Jesus saying these things to you? Can you imagine if Jesus admonished you in this way and said, get behind me, Satan? I'm quite certain I would dissolve into a puddle of tears and feel like my life was completely over, heartbroken by those words. And what is Peter's sin here? What did Peter do that was so wrong? Well, the reality is he did something that I do constantly, that I think pretty much I'm guessing all of you do constantly, which is he was valuing his comfort over sacrifice. He heard Jesus' words about cross and suffering, and he just, like, couldn't handle it. And we do this, too. We seek the comfort of our homes and our cars and our school districts and our grades and our GPA and our vacations and our retirement accounts and our portfolios and our social circles. We actively avoid decisions that would require compromise or sacrifice. When we hear about other people sacrificing something, we often try to stop them from doing it. Oh, you don't need to do that. What Peter does is he places the concept of comfort over and above the will and the words of Jesus. You see, when Peter calls Jesus the Messiah in the previous verses, he he envisioned a certain kind of Messiah. 
a warrior Messiah that was going to come much like King David, rid Israel of their enemies, sit on his eternal throne. And what's the consequence of that kind of Messiah? Well, that Messiah should make things relatively comfortable for me, right? If I follow that Messiah, things should be comfortable for me because that Messiah is comfortable. He doesn't have any enemies. He's sitting on his throne. He's unthreatened. So when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm, under, I'm going to undergo trials, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, Peter can't handle that. The Messiah is not supposed to suffer. The Messiah is supposed to conquer. But conquering is not the way of Jesus. So for this reason, Jesus extends his wordplay and calls Peter a stumbling block. Peter's rebuke might have been well-intentioned, but he has clearly crossed the line with Jesus. Not long ago, he was naming Peter's confession as the rock on which he was going to build his church. And now that rock has become what? A stumbling block. A pretty vivid imagery for a culture where people traveled by foot on rocky roads all the time. The foundation is a smooth one, but now Peter's become a rock that's going to be an impediment. People are going to trip and stumble over this. Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem, and Peter's standing in his way because he's not comfortable with it. The man who proclaimed him as the Messiah is now defying him. And in this, friends, I put these two texts together because they make a narrative whole, but also because there's two identities going on here that I think we can identify with. One of confession of Jesus, you're the Messiah, full of faith and wisdom. And one, a rebuke of Jesus that is immature and unwise. Peter, at the same time, like within a verse of one another, is an A plus and an F minus. And so are we. But Peter's interactions with Jesus also bring me back to that whiteboard. What does it mean to be a Christian? What's left on that whiteboard? Knowing Jesus and following Jesus. And these texts help us define that further for us. I like what F.D. Bruner says when he says there are two qualifications for a Christian in Matthew 16. The first is confessing Jesus as the Christ and following Jesus as the suffering Christ. Or in more theological terms, if you like fancy words, Christocentricity and Crucio-Christocentricity. Christians must confess Jesus, you're the Christ, and we must be willing to follow him as the suffering Christ. That's the message of Matthew 16, and it defines what following Jesus really means. So maybe you're here today and you've been investigating Christianity. You wouldn't necessarily call yourself a person of faith, and maybe this definition of what a Christian is is helpful for you today. I don't doubt that there are some of you here who may have been operating under a false definition of what it means to be a Christian. I hope that this is informative and maybe convicting for you. But either of you, if that's you today, I think the invitation is pretty clear, is you're invited to confess, you're, you're invited to confess Jesus as the Christ, just like Peter did, to join in that confession, to follow in Jesus' suffering. But these dual texts do more than that. I think they actually become instructive for all of us through Peter and, and his two different identities that are so evident. We see Jesus' desire for us and how he desires to work in spite of us. I think they help us understand what a Christian is, but they also help us understand something about the nature of how God works. So I want you to hang with me. I, I promise I'm getting close to done. But I want to build a really long run-on sentence for you. Because uh, I think these texts talk to us about how God's kingdom works. 
First, Jesus' kingdom work is always built on a confession of him as Lord and Savior. Um, When Jesus says he's going to build his church on Peter's confession, he's not thinking about the institution of church. He's certainly not thinking about the four walls that we're sitting within right now. What he's talking about is, is the people of God being about the kingdom work of God and his value and his mission. And what qualifies Peter for this kind of work, by the way? It is not his awesome skills. It is not his giftings. It is not his willingness to talk before anybody else can even think. It is not his experience. It's not his genogram. It's not his Myers-Briggs type. It is just his confession. That's what qualifies him for the work. Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That's it. Friends, God does his work in the world through people who are willing to confess him as Lord and Savior, just like Peter, echoing that confession. All right, let me keep going. Jesus' kingdom work is built on a confession of him as Lord and Savior, uttered by deeply flawed disciples. Did Peter nail his confession at Caesarea Philippi? Yes. A plus. Nailed it. Did he turn around and rebuke Jesus in the very next verse? Yes, he did. Did he deny Jesus three times in his hour of greatest need, saying, I don't even know the man? Yes, he did. Did he run from the cross for fear of his own precious safety? Yes, he did. And did Jesus use him anyways? Thank God, yes, he did. Did he give him a chance to reaffirm his original confession over and over again? Yes, he did. And does he do exactly the same over and over again for people like you and people like me? Yes, he does. Every single follower of Jesus is deeply flawed and is living into two identities. We're all in with Jesus, and then we're trying to tell Jesus what to do. We're an A plus and an F minus, and we're exactly the same as Peter, and God uses us anyways. What a grace. What a grace. So his kingdom work is built on the confession of him as Lord and Savior, uttered by deeply flawed disciples who don't turn away from suffering. In order to truly be part of of God's work in this world, we cannot turn away from the suffering of this world. We cannot assume that God is not interested in the suffering of this world or he's too good for it. It's all around us. People are suffering. There's loss. And Jesus did not bypass pain, though he could have bypassed pain. He did not transform all the pain of this world into joy and happiness and peace, though he could have done that. He went directly into the heart of suffering. And our confessions of him as Messiah and Lord ring hollow if we're not willing to suffer along with Jesus and and with his people. Peter misses out on the suffering of Jesus when he runs away from the cross. And the regret of that changed him into a man that joyfully embraced suffering later on in his life. Uh, More on that in subsequent weeks. But let me finish this super long sentence for you. Jesus' kingdom work is built on confession of him as Lord and Savior, uttered by deeply flawed disciples who don't turn away from suffering, all against the backdrop of a culture of opposition. The power of Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi is not that it's done uh, in a a place of comfort, but it's done in the face of real opposition with idols and sacrifices and false gods and pagan rituals happening all around him. It's uttered in a place that values religious syncretism and not rocking the boat and all sorts of rituals. Friends, the world around us is not our enemy. 
but we'd be foolish if we didn't see the parallels here. We are surrounded by false gods and idols and rituals that are, by definition, anti-Christ all day, every day. Idols that demand our attention and our loyalty and our trust that Jesus alone deserves. I'll just name a few of them. Consumerism and status and empire and money and celebrity and wealth and ideologies and political agendas and sex and power and nation and candidate and comfort and class. There is power when kingdom people stand in the midst of that kind of opposition, those kind of idols, and they utter, you alone, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So this, my dear friends, is how God does his very best and faithful work in the world. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we join in Peter's confession, and we join Jesus in his suffering, that we are Christocentric and crucio-Christocentric. And when we do that, we're welcomed to join God in his very best work as kingdom people built on that confession, utterly flawed, not turning away from suffering against the backdrop of a culture of opposition. So whether Peter's role in this text is allowing you to consider the truth of Jesus for the very first time, or it's giving you insight into how this kingdom work is done in the world, I think the invitation is pretty much the same for all of us this morning. We get to join in Peter's confession. That's our opportunity today. And friends, that is not a one-time confession. That is a confession that we ought to make all day, every day. So I'd like to um, introduce you or, or reintroduce you to a spiritual practice that will maybe help you do that. This is called a breathing prayer. It's how we're going to respond to God's word this morning. It's been a regular practice of our Orthodox brothers and sisters since at least the early 5th century and the great early desert father, John Chrysostom. It's a way to center our hearts and our minds on what is important. And it's pretty simple. You breathe. You are breathing, by the way. You're just probably not real conscious of your breathing very often. But you breathe, and what you do is you repeat one line as you're inhaling and one line as you exhale. And you do it slowly. And you continue to do that. You do it a second time, and a third time, and a tenth time, and a hundredth time. And as you do it over and over again, the words seep into your heart, and they reorient you, and they rid you of distractions. There's a typical prayer in the breathing prayer. It's called the prayer of David. Jesus Christ, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner, that Christians have been praying for thousands of years. But you can add other lines to that as well, and I thought that would be an opportunity for us this morning to pray Peter's confession. I'll have it on the screen for you here. But I would invite you to bow your heads, if you're really sleepy, you don't need to bow your heads. Actually, don't bow your heads if you're sleepy. Stay awake. But if you're, if you're awake enough to bow your heads and close your eyes, that's a great thing. I want you to just focus on your breathing. And I want you to begin just in the quiet of your own heart as you inhale to say in your heart, you are the Messiah. And as you exhale, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah the son of the living God. I'll give you a few moments of silence. I'll invite the band to come forward. I'll invite you to focus on your breathing as we pray this breathing prayer.
Lord, we are flawed disciples. Just as we speak these confessions in the silence of our own hearts with conviction and care and focus, we recognize our liability to turn around and walk out of these doors and within a few moments be telling you what to do and denying you and being unwilling to follow where you lead. Instead, would you keep this confession on our hearts? Might we be reminded that as we confess these things to you, we are also committing to join you in your suffering? You, the suffering Christ. Especially as we prepare for Holy Week in a couple weeks, would you teach us what it means to journey with you even to places of suffering and to not look away? The God who did not turn away from the suffering of this world nor the sin of our hearts, but went straight into it. And as we do so, may we keep this confession on our lips. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Amen and amen. Let's stand for our closing worship.